Amen. Well, as we begin the new year, I want to deliver a short series of messages that will address some of the basics of the Christian life. And so I have to start with a particular subject in order to build the right foundation. In order for us to become strong, mature Christians, our lives, again, must be built on the right foundation. We all know or probably have witnessed in our own homes, if there's something wrong with the foundation of the house or a structure, cracks develop over time. And that house is not as strong and secure as it could be. So what is the foundation that the Christian life must rest upon? What is the foundation that the, that the life of the disciples of Jesus must be built upon? Well, the answer is given to us here in Psalm 92. Uh, again, Psalm 92 is a song or a psalm of worship. And I pointed out if you uh, look closely, your Bible probably says that uh, or labels this psalm as a song for the Sabbath. Now, why is worship the foundation of the life of the Christian? Let me give you two very quick reasons. Number one, we have been created to worship God. Secondly, we have been redeemed to worship God. And we understand that worship is not something that takes place only on Sunday morning. It is something that takes place every day of the week. But certainly Sunday is a significant day for corporate worship for all believers, and therefore must not be neglected. And if we think to the opening chapters of the book of Revelation, particularly chapters 4 and 5, what's happening in heaven? Worship. The Lamb is being worshipped. So here in Psalm 92, the psalmist is going to teach us how we as believers should approach the public worship of God as we gather each week with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So let me start with a question this morning. If I were to ask you, what is the primary function of the church, what would your answer be? Now, there would be some, perhaps somebody here, who might immediately say, oh, that's easy. The primary function of the church is soul winning or evangelism or missions. And they would point to the Lord's command, his, some of his parting words, when he told us to do what? To go into all the world and preach the gospel, to go and make disciples of all the nations. But I would counter that with another question. The second question I would ask would be this. What is the purpose of the Great Commission? In other words, why or to what extent have we been instructed to preach the gospel to every creature? to make disciples of all the nations? Well, let me give you the answer that John Piper gave in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. And he said the reason that missions exist is because worship doesn't. He goes on to say worship is, ult- is ultimate, not missions, and because, God is ult- and because God is ultimate, not man. So why, does, why do we Win souls, why do we evangelize? Why do we engage in missions? Why do we give to missions? Because worship doesn't. And worship is the foundation of the life of the Christian. But what have we seen transpire, particularly in the past three or four decades, in the evangelical church, not only in America, but even perhaps around the world? 
Well, Sinclair Ferguson puts it aptly. He says, the church has allowed secondary concerns to blind its eyes to the real function of the church, which is to worship God. So the primary function of the church is the worship of God. And perhaps part of the problem with the modern-day church is a misunderstanding of what worship is and where worship originates. Therefore, if such a problem exists, how can the problem be corrected? Well, this won't surprise you, I doubt. The problem can be corrected by going back to, to the Scriptures and letting the Scriptures define both what worship is, what worship does, and where worship originates. Now, because there's a lot of confusion about worship, and we sometimes hear the phrase modern-day worship and those kinds of terms, we need to understand that biblically, worship is not something that we work up. And that's what we see in many, many churches today. They believe that they are responsible to work up, to create, to provide what they call the proper atmosphere of worship. And it usually entails things like you have to have the right music, and of course, the right music is their music, or you have to have the right kind of lighting, or you have to have the right kind of atmosphere. I had a friend of mine tell me one time, he asked my opinion, he said, what, what would you think about a, 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 a quote-unquote worship leader that says, I'm going to lead you into the presence of God and help you worship God? What would you think about a church like that? I said, I'd, I'd walk out the back door and never go back. It's a misunderstanding of what worship is. Worship is not something we work up. It's something that actually comes down to us. Too much that passes for worship today is nothing more than sheer emotionalism. It's all about the, quote-unquote, the worship experience. It's all about the thrill or the feeling that I get out of it. It's got more to do with just the heart and very little, if anything, to do about the head. Therefore, true biblical worship is not so much emotional as it is theological. When we properly understand God... There is no better worship experience than what will flow out of that knowledge of God. You know, and it's not uncommon to hear many people say today, they go to church for the worship. When in reality, the believer should always go to church to worship. You and I should go to church to be an active participant in the worship of the Lord Most High. I received, let me just give you an example of how this, how people view worship. I received an email about two or three weeks ago now from someone who had attended our church for a few weeks in a row, and they asked me if I would like them to perform some special Christmas music for us during our worship service. I thanked them for the offer, but politely declined because, as I explained, 
We always want the congregation to be an active participant during the time of corporate worship through song. This is not, this is not a venue for you to spotlight yourself. No, this is a time when God's people gather together publicly for corporate worship. You can go be a Hollywood wannabe, Grammy award-winning wannabe somewhere else. Thank you very much. I don't fault the person who sent the email. I fault the teaching they've had. Complete misunderstanding of the nature of biblical worship. So again, the foundation of worship is not something emotional, something that we work up. It is deeply theological. It's something that comes down to us from the character of God. So here in Psalm 92, we not only see what worship is, but we also see what worship does. True worship reveals what we delight in. True worship reveals what we delight in. So the psalmist teaches us that our worship is a response to the work of God both in us and around us. So two points today. Here's point one. Our worship is a response to the work of God in and around us. Our worship is always a response to the work of God both in us and around us. That is to say that the basis for our worship must always be our God-centeredness. That was the basis for the worship of the psalmist here. He was God-centered in his life. His thinking was dominated by praise and thanksgiving. Now, notice that he begins by declaring that it is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to the name of the Most High. So he begins by giving thanks to the Lord. Now, you probably notice in your Bible that Lord is all there in caps, which means he's giving thanks to Yahweh, which means that was the personal name for the God of Israel. And he continues to not only give thanks, but he goes on to say that it's equally good to sing praises to the Most High. And the Most High is a term that exalts, uh, that describes the exalted nature of God. So it's good when we sing praises to the exalted one. It's good to give thanks to God. His thanksgiving and his praise flow out of his knowledge, i.e., his theology. What he knows and understands about God is the fuel for his praise, not his emotions. What he knows will impact his emotions, but they will be informed emotions, not ignorant emotions, not out-of-control emotions, not self-serving emotions. They will be informed emotions, properly responded to and directed to God and His glory. But where is this thanksgiving and praising of the Lord Most High taking place? Well, if you'll notice, it's taking place on the Lord's Day among God's people. Remember, this is a song for the Sabbath. This was a song for the gathered people of God. So what we have here really is clear instruction as to how we are to worship God when we gather together. This psalm provides clear direction and instruction as to how we, the people of God, should worship as we gather together on the Lord's day. Sadly, 
There are many who believe that they can do whatever they want in worship, and God is pleased with that. That is not true. The Bible describes for us the proper way to worship. And frankly, it, it is the best kind of worship. You know, have you ever been to a worship service and they do things that just make you feel really uncomfortable, just like feel that really out of place? You know? Now, thankfully, I've never been to one, but I've heard this described by some. You, you know, uh, you, you go to a church and they have some kind of interpretive dance and they've, they've got flags. You know, I thought that, I thought that was for halftime at the football game. I, you know, I, I, I don't see how that fits in church. What good does that do in church? Do we, do we find that prescribed in scriptures? I, I don't think that we do. So when God's people gather together on the first day of the week, when God's people gather each Sunday, they do so because it is good. You might just might make a mark by that in your Bible and just write down, here's the attitude that he had towards worship. Look at verse 1 again. It is good. I emphasize that word. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. The psalmist has discovered that worship is a delight for him as well as the rest of the people of God gathered together on each Lord's day. Now, when you delight in something, what's your natural response? For instance, you eat uh, some new, well, we just came out of the holidays, and I had for the first time Amanda made I always get this poor lady's name wrong, Martha or Norma. Which one was it? Norma. Aunt Norma's uh, cheesy potatoes. Oh, my word. You know what my natural response was to that? I wanted more. I wanted more. See, when you delight in something, the natural response is, you want more. You try out that new recipe and you say, man, that's good. Let me have some more of that. So I ask you, do you view the public gathering of God's people that way? Do you delight to come to church and be with God's people? And someone said, now, wait a minute. It's our duty to worship God because we are Christians. Yes, it is our duty. But do you think God is more honored by when we simply do our duty, or is God more honored when we move from duty to delight in glorifying and worshiping Him. What do you think brings Him more honor and more glory, duty or delight? I would say the delight. This begs the question, do you delight to come to church and be with God's people? Or can you take it or leave it? Or is, like, is worship like a, that delicious meal you can't get enough of? Look what the psalmist said in verse 4, For you, O Lord have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. Say, so what's going on here? Well, as he worshiped, now let's, let's not miss this. As he worshiped, he was reminded of the work of God. And as he remembered the work of God, what happened? He was glad. As he sang about the works of God, he experienced joy. This guy didn't approach the Sabbath, or for us, Sunday, with a sense of dread. He approached it as a time of delight. 
Matthew Jr. was over the house last night, and we uh, have a rather large extended family now by God's grace, and we're thrilled by that. And so when we wrap Christmas presents, you, you can imagine we, 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 we buy for almost 20 people. So to wrap each one individually, we'd have to start tomorrow. So uh, my wife came up with this ingenious idea a couple years ago where we, we got big boxes and everybody gets their gifts in one big box. So we still have 17 boxes that we have to take care of. And so the kids take their gifts home and bring them back. And I'm boring you all. But anyway, Matt brought his back last night and uh, brought him back in the door. And Junior was sitting there on the floor playing. And as soon as he saw those boxes, he said, Christmas. You know, he's like, hey, here we are again. For this guy, for the psalmist, every Sunday was Christmas. It was a delight to him. He couldn't wait to get to the house of the Lord. The gathering of God's people was something that he looked forward to with eagerness and with anticipation. Think about this. I, all I have to, to say to most of you is Monday and what happens? Ugh, you got to be kidding me. Not Monday again. Just another manic Monday, right? But what about Sunday? When we think about Sunday's coming, there's an old saying among preachers, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Do you take delight in the knowledge of the fact that Sunday's coming? that you get to gather together with God's people, that you get to gather together with people that you love. And mom and dad, let me ask you this. What is the message that you send to your children each week concerning the public gathering of God's people, church? What's the attitude you display towards the gathering of God's people? Is it a priority or does it take a backseat to other activities? And see, the attitude that you display today will be the attitude they display tomorrow. The seed that you're sowing today will one day bloom and blossom. So mom and dad, ask yourself, is the seed that I'm planting, is it going to blossom into delight? Or is it going to be disdain? Or is it going to be disinterest? And let me take this one step farther, farther, farther and talk to the fathers. Dads, dads, do you realize, and you want to be dads, do you realize the vital role that you play in your children's spiritual development and their attitude towards church? Are you, both in word and deed, teaching your children that regular attendance at church is a priority. Do you make it a priority? Down through the years since I've been a pastor, which is 20-some years now, there have been more than one study conducted about the impact of fathers who attend church on a regular basis, the impact that it has on their children. And so I went this week again and searched for the latest study, and I found one on the Gospel Coalition's website. And let me give you what they summarize from this study. Here's the quote. In short, if a father does not go to church, no matter how faithful his wife's devotions, only one child in 50, that's not 
that's one child in 50 will become a regular worshiper. If a father does go regularly, regardless of the practice of the mother, between two-thirds and three-quarters of their children will become churchgoers. If a father goes but irregularly to church, regardless of his wife's devotion, between a half and two-thirds of their offspring will find themselves coming to church regularly or occasionally. See, dads, we cannot underestimate the impact of the example that we set in the lives of our children as to their future attendance and activity in the church. Sadly, this is what you see in many churches. You go to many churches, and the ladies far outnumber the men. We see that you, you take just about any church. Remember that our actions many times speak louder than our words. Let me, you know, we raised four children by God's grace. And would you have four kids and they're all within two years or so of each other, their birth dates? When they're younger, they get sick, right? So... There were times when some of them had to stay home. But not all of us stayed home. I would go. The healthy kids would go. Why? Because my actions would speak louder than my words. So, mom and dad, if The children are sick. Certainly we understand that. But does everybody have to stay home? Is that sending the right message? Or should dad perhaps come by himself? Or perhaps he comes and brings the healthy siblings with him? Again, I don't say these things to wound an already tender conscience. But at the same time, I can't abdicate my responsibility to shepherd my flock. So those are some things to consider. So the psalmist delighted to be among God's people on the Lord's day. Not boating or hiking or hunting or soccer games or a million other things that you can get involved in. He delighted to come and take part in the public worship of the Lord Most High. You know what? It's my desire as your pastor and as the Lord's under-shepherd that you not only would be regular and faithful in attendance, but that you would delight in your attendance. Sometimes I wish I could uh, have Joey outfit me with a GoPro right up here, and there'd be a couple screens behind me so you all could see what I see. I wonder if we're delighting in being here. And I will say, for the most part, I think most of you do. The Lord's Day should be the highlight of your week. What, what could be more special than that? And again, thankfully, I see this trait in many of you. You're, you're in no hurry to rush off. You arrive early. You stay late. Those are signs of God's people who delight to be in God's house. And the point that the psalmist is making is not only is it right to worship God, it's good to worship God. 
It's good to worship God. It's a delight to worship God. He didn't say you ought to worship God, but it's good to worship God. And when we come together to gather as God's people, it should be a delight for us. Again, I ask you humbly, is this your attitude? Is your attitude concerning the church one of duty or is it one of delight? Here's another critical question for your consideration. Do you come to church to get something out of worship? Is that the right way to approach worship? In other words, what is your expectation in worship? R.C. Sproul tells the story of a conversation he had with a young man that's been some time ago, obviously. R.C.'s in heaven now. But this young man, he really changed the way that people viewed church, and not necessarily for the better. And this young man said to him that when he went to the Chicago area to plant a church, he kept hearing over and over again from people that church was boring and church was irrelevant. And so he purposed that he was going to change the thinking of people, and so he was going to do church in such a way where they couldn't say the church was boring or church was irrelevant. And so he has this conversation with R.C. Sproul, and R.C. Sproul said to him, when I look at my Bible and people, people encounter God, I see some of them tremble. I see some of them weep. I see some of them die. But I never find any place in my Bible where people encounter the living God and go, ho-hum, that was kind of boring. So he goes on and says to this guy, could it be that the reason that they find church boring and irrelevant is that they come to church and either God was not there because his word was not honored and preached, his praises were not sung, he was not the focus of what was going on? Or could it be they came there and the reason they were bored is because they weren't looking for God, they were looking for something else? Good question, isn't it? Well, what is it that many people come looking for? Some kind of experience. But what is it that we should be looking to get out of worship? God. That's the whole point, God. God should be our deepest delight. When we come to worship, we come to have communion with God, to fellowship with God, to get to know God better. We should come to worship with the expectation that through our worship, as Ben said this morning, we become more like Him. We want to hear from Him. We want to praise Him. We want to give thanks to Him. He is the reason that we come to worship. That's the only reason we come to worship. Is that your expectation? As Ligon Duncan said to his congregation, if you don't want God, you're going to be bored here. So ask yourself, do you really want God? You know, when you come here through our prayers, through the reading of God's Word, through the songs of praise and through the preaching of God's Word, you know what we're doing? We're pointing you to God. We're holding out God to you for you to worship Him, for you to delight in. That's the whole point. True worship, meaningful worship happens when you come to the place that you care about God and you want God more than anything else. And perhaps 
That's why we don't experience true worship more than we do. So what are the results of worshiping God in His works? Well, the psalmist highlights several of them. Look at verse 4. First is joy and gladness. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. So when the psalmist went to worship with God's people, what was his focus? They were the works of God. Now, what works is he referring to? Well, if you read the text closely and carefully, you'll learn that the works that he has in mind are the works of God on his behalf and the works of God in the lives of others. So he's thinking about what God has done for him. Say, well, how do you know that? Because he draws a contrast between the righteous and the unrighteous in verses 5 through 9. And I'll leave the reading of those verses to you for your homework later this afternoon. But the focus of the psalmist in worship was not the circumstances going on around him that were out of his control. Anyone want to say amen to that? No, his focus was on the work of God in his life. And as he focused on what God was doing in his life, what did he do? Did he sit back and say, oh, well, was he unmoved? Was he unconcerned? No, what happens here? He experiences joy and gladness. When he focused on what God was doing in his life and in the lives of others, the result was him praising and giving thanks, which created joy and gladness in his life. Listen, if you want to rob yourself of joy and gladness, if you want to make yourself miserable, I have the recipe for you. Here it is. Focus on yourself. Focus on the circumstances that are out of your control. Focus on the condition of our culture that is going to hell in a handbasket right before our very eyes. Focus on all of that stuff, and I guarantee you there will be no joy, there will be no gladness, there will be no songs of praise, there will be no words of thanksgiving. Why? Because your focus is in the wrong place. See, focusing on anything other than God and His goodness to you will always rob you of joy and gladness. So do you see why the psalmist says it is good, it's good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to the name of the Most High? In fact, he says in here, I don't have my glasses on, so hopefully I can see this. Uh, look at verse 5. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. You know what I take that to mean? He spent a lot of time thinking about God. And the deeper he thought, the deeper he could go. And the deeper he could go, the deeper he could go. And the deeper he could go, the deeper he could go. And what does it evoke? It evokes thanksgiving. It evokes praise. Why his mind, his thinking is totally consumed on who God is and what God has done for him. Second, he experienced strength and victory. Look at verses 10 and 11. Behold, you have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. Now, that phrase, you exalted my horn, refers to strength. 
As a result of his focus on the works of God, he worshiped God. And from his worship, what did he gain? Strength. I immediately thought of Psalm 18, 29. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. Strength from his worship. Have you, have you noticed that life has a way of beating you down? There's a song I listen to occasionally titled Life's Twisted. Here's a few of the lyrics. Just when you think you've got it figured out, life comes along and hits you in the mouth. You wake up smiling on a sunny day. The clouds pour in and then it's pouring rain. Then the chorus goes, life's twisted like a back road in the country, like a switchblade in an alley. Let me tell you, boy, you better watch your back. Life's twisted like that. Isn't that true? Life will beat you down. But you come to church on Sunday, and you're with people that you love and people who love you, and you, you start to sing, and your focus begins to change. Your, the prayers are prayed, and your burdens become lighter. The Scripture is read and proclaimed, and you're encouraged, and all of a sudden, the bounce is back into your step. Why? Because the focus has been on God and what God has done for us. And all of a sudden, what's going on elsewhere? Yes, it's important, but you know what? It's not dominating our lives. It's not what we focus on. It's not what we live for. Listen, a lot of you would, would do, uh, do yourselves a good deed by turning that nonsense off. Cable news has become an idol for far too many Christians. Dump it. Focus on God. Focus on what God is doing, not not the politicians in Washington, who knows what they're doing? But not only was he strengthened, he experienced victory. That's what he says in verse 11. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. Now, notice he says he hears and sees these things. In other words, the implication is, the implication is that God is out ahead of him. God is fighting for him. God has his back. God is protecting him. God is taking care of his own. He experiences victory, but it's a victory that God is giving him. But not only does he experience joy and gladness, strength and victory, he also experiences fruitfulness. Look at verses 12 through 15. The righteous flourish like a palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still, they still bear fruit in an old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Now look at the words that he uses to describe his delighting in God. First of all, he says the righteous flourish like a palm tree. Palm tree does what? It grows straight and tall and strong, and up the top it has that beautiful leafy green foliage. And all those things are a sign of health and well-being. The tree's strong and it's healthy, but not only are the righteous flourishing like a palm tree, he says they grow like a cedar of Lebanon. The cedar trees of Lebanon, they were desirable for the strength of their wood plus the smell. You don't see these... Uh, much nowadays, but when I was growing up, either my mom or my grandmother had a cedar chest. Anybody know what a cedar chest is? Yeah. Some of you as old as I am, amen. 
And what's distinctive about a cedar chest? The smell. It smells like cedar. So that's what he's saying here, the righteous, they're not just, they're like a palm tree, but they're like a strong cedar, and they smell good. The righteous are planted, he goes on to say, in the house of the Lord. Christian, that means you're not an old weed languishing somewhere out in the desert. You're in the house of the Lord, and because you are under his care, you're under his protection, you're flourishing. You're not just barely existing, you're flourishing. You say, this has not been my experience. Have you been delighting in God? Has this been your focus? And notice finally what he says here. The results of worship continue into old age. Now, please understand, he's talking in spiritual terms, not physical terms. He says, those who delight in God continue to grow spiritually. They continue to flourish spiritually. They are ever full of sap. Sap is a sign of what? Life. Spiritual life. And they're green. They're not spiritually dry and brittle. Still got spiritual life, spiritual vitality. You know, it's horrible to see an older Christian who has become bitter and brittle. That's the time of life when God says you should still be flourishing. Yes, your body will betray you. Your body will break down. But spiritually, you can still flourish till the end of your days. I think back to the opening chapters of the book of Job. I highlighted it in my research this week, but didn't write it down. But anyway, after that opening barrage against Job, it talks about how the fact that he still did what? He worshiped. In spite of the troubles he was experiencing, he still was able to worship. Then the, the elderly believer, the godly saint who spent a lifetime delighting in God, they can say even as their bodies begin to fail them that it's okay because God is my rock. They can declare that the Lord is upright and there is no unrighteousness in him. I think again of the psalm, surely goodness and mercy will follow me. How far? Part of the way to death? Three-quarters of the way to death? All the days of my life. So I ask you, what is the firm foundation your life must be built upon? The worship of God. And it's the worship of God that comes down to us. It's not something that we work up. It comes down to us, and in the midst of God's people, on God's day, we openly declare our thanks and our praise for His works and the ongoing results of our delighting in God. I'm not big on New Year's resolutions. Most of them are gone by the wayside by the 10th anyway. But how about just making this resolve right now in your life? Why not make this a year that you make corporate worship a priority so that you can have a life of flourishing, joy, gladness, 
strength, and victory. Let's pray.